0: And I have one one person listening to me here. Thank you, Pam. The Lord be with you. It's good to be with you again this morning. There we go. I'm just getting adjusted and back and in, back into the swing of things. We've been on vacation this whole last week. We left yet last week Sunday right from church, and we got back at midnight last night. So it's we were all over in the western Pennsylvania visiting family going back to the seminary, had a wedding last night in Washington, Pennsylvania, so we've been, I did sleep in this morning, Dave let me off the hook, I didn't have to go to the 8 a.m. service, what about that, right, so I have to do, you know, he told me to do 10 Hail Marys and 20 Our Fathers, but, but... <laughs> yes, indeed, that's my penance. Ed understood. One person got the joke, that's right. Okay, well, uh, today and next week, we are going to be talking about Revelation. And you may be wondering, or you may already know, but you may be wondering, why in the world are we talking about just one book, right? At the beginning of the class, we talked about five books, the Torah, then we talked about all the prophets, then all the uh, writings, the epistles, the gospels. Why are we ending with just one book? Well, it's, it's up there, yeah. It's, it's certainly complicated. But it kind of stands off, in the New Testament especially, it stands off on its own because it's the only example of its of its genre, uh, it's kind of a mixed genre, which we'll talk about in a minute, but um, it's the only one of its kind in the New Testament. So as we've been going through genre by genre, we actually are studying the genre of apocalypse, apocalypse apocalyptic literature. And Revelation is the only example of a whole book that we have in this, um, in this genre. So as we uh, start in, let's, t- let's just generally talk some opening questions. What do we think about Revelation? What do we make of it? Do we read it regularly? Do we avoid it regularly? Um, and how do we understand the book as a whole? There is no wrong answer. This is just tell me what you think. Uh-oh, throw out a stinker. My says all aimed at the first okay. All aimed at the first century church. Great. Okay, great. I like him. We need to talk. Yeah, okay, good. Anything? Did I see a hand over here, Campbell's? Sure. Oh. I like that. Oh, yeah. I love that. I love that. Absolutely. Yeah, Revelation is like theater because there are there are stage directions. And then then I came over here, then the angel told me to stand up and Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Great. Anything else? What do we make of it? Do we read it They probably had something like that, but we're not going to go there. I don't think, especially for the the folks at home listening to the recording after the fo- after the fact. Okay, it's it is hard to understand, right? It's not as straightforward as the epistles and the gospels, right? There's something different. We get to the end of the bo- the Bible, we read this last book, and we're like, "What did I just read?" Right. Um. How about that second question, though, do we read it regularly or do we avoid it regularly? How about do we avoid it regularly? How about do we read it regularly? and how about uh, I read it about as much as I read everything else? one of those yeah, okay. Well, as we um, enter into this book um, i've been i've been doing some reading and and uh, i'll give you actually a Bibliography: Some works that I've been, some books that I've been reading in the last several months. Uh, if you're interested, but this one is really the one that's going to help us the most. Uh, Michael Gorman wrote a book called "Reading Revelation Responsibly." Um, it's called. The subtitle is my fa- is my favorite: "Uncivil Worship and Witness: Following the Lamb into the New Creation." It is a phenomenal. Uh, a phenomenal book, and um, he asks the question: Why? Why should we read it at all? And I want to just read uh, a bit of this to you. Um, he writes that Revelation, and this is just in the introduction, he writes, Revelation is not about the Antichrist, but about the living Christ. It's not about rapture out of this world, in, uh, uh, but about faithful discipleship here in this world. That is, like every other New Testament book, Revelation is about Jesus Christ. Quote, a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's how the book starts. And about following him in obedience and love. So if anyone asks, why read the apocalypse? Why read Revelation? The unhesitating answer must be, to know Christ better. I'll say that again. Why read the apocalypse? Why read Revelation? To know Christ better. In this last book of the Christian Bible, Jesus is portrayed to us as the faithful witness who remained true to God despite tribulation. Jesus is portrayed as the present one who walks among the communities of his followers, speaking comfort and challenge through the Spirit. Jesus is portrayed as the lamb that was slain and now reigns with God the Creator, sharing in the devotion and worship due to God alone. And Jesus is portrayed as the coming one who will bring God's purpose to fulfillment and reign with God among the people of God in the new heaven and the new earth. Revelation is therefore also about being true to God and heeding the spirit by following Jesus. Specifically in faithful witness and resistance, attentive listening, liturgical living, and missional hope. There's a lot there that we won't get into, but... I just love the idea that why do we read this book at all? Because I'll be honest, I haven't really touched this since my Southern Baptist days, which we'll talk about throughout the class, um, which I understood it very, very differently back then. Yes? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll come, we'll come to that in a minute. Well, and, and I, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't use such a wide, uh, broad brush in there. In my congregation... And in my upbringing, yes. Everyone said, Revelation's all about the future and the end times, not about, you know, the past or, or anything like that. But we'll, yeah, we'll come back there. So Jesus is a faithful witness, the present one, the lamb who was slain, and the coming one. Okay. Oops. So our outline of the class today uh, we'll start by talking about some approaches and attitudes to the book of Revelation. We'll continue with the discussion on genre, authorship, audience, dating, as you know by now. I think those are important keys to unlocking uh, what's going on in a book. We'll look at a very, very broad outline of Revelation. We'll move to understanding, hopefully, some symbolism from within the book. And then we'll listen to the book. We'll receive a blessing. And we'll come to that more later. And then we'll finally delve into some passages. So let's jump right into it. We've got some approaches. So some completely avoided. Some of you admitted that earlier. right? And Gorman, he uses some interesting language I appreciate. He says, for some, Revelation has been decanonized. It's almost like, well, yeah, it's in there, but I don't read it at that point. If you don't read it and it's, it's in the Bible, then it's not really your Bible, right? Um, so he says it's been decanonized. And why, why, why might we do that? Well, we've lifted up some of those already. It's too difficult. It's complicated, scary, and mysterious. And more, you know, throw on some more adjectives there. It's a lot of things. And yeah, it's kind of hard to understand. But some completely concentrate on it. It is not just canon, it is hyper-canonized, right? It is, right, we may, we may focus, in, in this congregation, we focus a lot on Gospels, right? We read from the Gospels, we preach from the Gospels a lot, because we see Jesus there a lot. Um, but some folks say, yeah, that's great, but Revelation, right? I remember in college, um, one of my first experiences of meeting a Christian who was not a Southern Baptist, um, she was actually Presbyterian. And I said, oh, have you read Left Behind? Oh, I love those books. And this was way back when, right? And, and she said, what are you talking about? And I said, well, you know, the end times and the rapture and the tribulation. And she said, I don't know what you're talking about. And I said, can she be a Christian if she doesn't know what I'm talking about? Um, so for me, in my upbringing, Revelation became hyper-canonized. I did. That's no, she was not my girlfriend by any means then. Um, um the so some completely concentrate on it. The future they would say the future is foretold and um we can figure it out if we can decode the symbols or unravel the mystery. So, on one, one side, we've got folks who say, meh, I'm going to avoid this. It's decanonized. On the other side, it's hyper canonized. It's the only thing we really care about because it's the key to unlocking everything, right? The mysteries. We can figure it out. We just need somebody like Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins to help us. But I, I really think that we should try to establish some middle ground. Is there a place where it's not just hyper canonized or decanonized, but it's just canon? Or we can just say, this is important to read, and we should try. Um, one, one big, um, an early, disc- early discussion we should have is regarding uh, foretelling versus telling. So foretelling uh, is about prophecy, about the future. And that's what most people think Revelation is. It's all about the end times, long time from now. Well, John didn't think so. He thought it was coming up pretty soon. Um, for us, we say, oh yeah, well, it's still coming up in the future. Exactly how he wrote it, that's how it might be. But I would, I would suggest that rather than foretelling the future, Revelation is more about foretelling. And that's really what I say all the prophets are about. Rather than saying, this is, you have no idea what's going to happen. Let me tell you what's going to happen. The prophets in foretelling say, look around you. You, this is This is a problem you are sinning, you are taking advantage of your neighbor you are not living the way that the, our Lord instructed you to be living. You need to be doing right and if you do right this is this good things will happen if you don 't live right, if you don 't live righteous life following god's god 's commandments, then bad things will happen so revelation isn 't that much different it's not it's not some this is the only way it's ever going to happen, and there's the beast, and there's the harlot of Babylon. It's, it's not about things that necessarily will happen exactly as John's writing it. It's more about using imaginative language to say um, there are bad things that will happen or are happening, to Jerry's point a little while ago, which we'll come back to. Um, yeah. So another way, and this is again from uh, Michael Gorman's book, uh, he contrasts prophetic foresight with theological insight, which I think is an interesting uh, contrast. So um, rather than what's happening in the future, it's, it's a little bit of insight, a little bit of p- a peek behind, a peek into what's really going on, what God is up to. Uh, Bruce Metzger, who we've talked about a lot in this class, um, he... Said that the book of Revelation is unique in appealing primarily to our imagination. Not, however, a freewheeling imagination, uh, but a disciplined imagination. So uh, I had the opportunity a few weeks ago to go up to Cleveland and hear Reverend John Bell, who is from Iona, speak. And he said something that I, I, really captured me. He said that the language of the Bible and the language of God, there's really three different ways. There's three different Ways that God speaks to us, and there's a, there's kind of a fact-based telling, right? Information and um, it's very factual. There's not a, there's not a lot of meat in the bones. It's just the very core of what you need. That's really what we get in the epistles, he said. And then there's this story. There's story-based communication, and that really happens a lot in the gospels, right? Jesus tells a, a story, and at the end of it, you're you have. Yes, you have information, but you also have a lot more. It's not just the bones, it's the meat on the bones, right? But then, Revelation, it's not fact-based, it's its not just story, there's more to it. And this is where it comes into the imagination, the level of imagination. As we read or as we hear the, the words of Revelation, even if we don't understand it, we're still, these word pictures are coming to us, and we are... We are scared or we are uh, inspired. It, it touches us in a weird way. And I think that's why some people avoid it. We don't know what it does to us, right? There's this weird thing that it's doing. The rest of the Bible is not doing it in the same way because it's not telling the story in the same way. We should also talk about um, prophecies. As, as we approach prophecies and visions, we may use these words a little interchangeably. But something we should realize uh, is that prophecies and visions can be symbolic. Um, because it's it's appealing to our imagination, doesn't mean that this has happened, is happening, or necessarily will happen. Instead, we can look throughout the Bible and say, oh yeah, there's a vision, there's a prophecy, and that's just a symbol. Back in Ezekiel 37, it describes uh, this vision that Ezekiel has of, this valley of dry bones, that he has this vision of these coming to life. Now, some may say, well, that literally happened. I happen to think it's probably just a vision, like a dream, right? That God comes to him and um, gives him this vision to imagine the revitalization of Israel. Jump over to Acts chapter 10, when Peter has that vision, right? Remember, the Jews couldn't eat certain animals, and then Peter has this, this this dream this vision of all these animals on this sheet right coming from heaven and and he hears the voice of god saying eat he's like well no that's that's gross i can't eat that that's disgusting but he says eat so as we read that story we're not supposed to think that you know god sent four angels to down to bed bath and beyond to get a sheet and then went over to the zoo and got some... No, we're not supposed to literally imagine that happen. Instead, this is just something that, that the imagination has captured onto. A dream, something that, that they're seeing uh, without actually taking place. And so Revelation as a whole, um, when we read the book, uh, we, ha- we hear about John seeing a beast rising out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. There's no reason to imagine this beast exists or would exist. Um, But this vision has profound significance for John and for us. And we'll talk about in a few moments what some of those things might mean. And it gives us, it makes us have, we respond to it. It gives us cognitive insight. It gives us an emotional response. Okay. So how do we understand the genre of revelation. As I said, um, it's apocalypse, for the most part, Um, and this term is the English form of the very first word, the very first Greek word of the book, apocalypsis, which means revelation. It does not mean destruction, end of the world, or anything similar. So those, that, that whole, you know, there are all those games, and there's those movies, apocalypse now, and all those things it's it's kind of just it it, it it has this connotation of meaning much more but really the word just means unveiling or uh, a revealing somebody pulled back the curtain and you see what's behind the curtain imagine it's like wizard of oz right um but there's you know you have some beasts and some other things behind the curtain not just the, the little man at the end of wizard of oz whoops um while we are going to be talking about it primarily as apocalypse revelation is further complicated by the fact that there are multiple genres within it so you have a prophecy you have letter liturgical texts theopolitical texts and apocalypse and some of the there is overlap between these but it's more than just apocalypse And and, um, within the first, within the two centuries around Christ, so two centuries prior and two centuries following Jesus, um, Jesus' earthly life, that is, a considerable number of Jewish Christian texts appeared within this genre, apocalyptic literature. None of them in whole are, are part of the canon, except Revelation. Now, there are parts of Daniel, the second half of Daniel, there are certain chapters, the little apocalypse of Isaiah. There's a few chapters in Ezekiel, a few in Zechariah, where they are using apocalyptic language, especially referring to the day of the Lord. And they, um, But there's, Revelation is unique in the whole of the Bible, and then it's the only one that's pretty much all um, apocalypse. But outside, so what do we do? We have to read, then, other apocalypses to understand this one, right? If you only had one gospel, but you, you, how would you understand how to read it? Well, you've got to go and read other biographies. You've got to read other gospels that may not be in the canon, right? So that's what scholars have done, right? There are other apocalyptic books like Enoch, Apocalypse of Baruch, 4th Ezra, Jubilees, uh, The Ascension of Isaiah, and The Testaments of the 12 Patriarchs, which are books that we all have, you can go on on the computer right now and read those in full, right? Uh, go online, buy a book. If you want a book, I can recommend a book. Um, and Enoch, as we've talked about before, the book of Enoch, which is quite long, is one of the weirdest books. Um, but for some reason, it's quoted in the New Testament, right? Jude, in the book of Jude, there's a little quote uh, from First Enoch, like verbatim, and he says, "Well, of course, as is written, the prophet, which prophet?" The prophet Enoch, what? Um, So what do we do with that? I don't know, but it's always interesting to think about. Okay. This is where we get into defining apocalypse, and we actually talked about this, if you were in the Daniel class uh, with Debbie Runlet last year, and Dave and I each stepped in a few times, um, we've talked about this before, but there's a lot to it, and so I wanted to break it down bit by bit. So this is Collins and Hellholm. They, they come together. Uh, Collins starts us off defining Apocalypse, and then Hellholm adds a little bit at the end. They define Apocalypse as a genre of revelatory literature. So something is something that we didn't know, now we know in a different way. Something is being revealed to us that we didn't already know. Within a narrative framework, so there's story, Something is being revealed in a story form. And it's being mediated by an otherworldly being, like an angel, to a human recipient, right? It's not just that the angel is writing this down. It's not that um, the person, the the human recipient is just seeing this whole thing without a being. You need both, really, for a full apocalypse. And that... That otherworldly being is disclosing something beyond the normal, right? It's not just, hey, look at this guy down the corner buying a hot dog. No, it's, it's, it's much more than that. It's, look at what's going on in the third heaven above. You won't believe it. Like, well, what does that mean? Something's beyond. There is a sense in which it's temporal, right? So it's not just what's happening necessarily now. Perhaps it's talking about things in the future time. And spatial, so it's, again, it's not just something down the street, it's something way up in heaven or on the other side of the world. There's something that's really far away. And this is where Helholm comes in, and he said, this is all just Collins. And then Helholm comes along and says, yep, yeah, that's a great definition, and we need to add a few more things. And this is why, what I really appreciate, which I think helps us a lot to understand Revelation. He says that... Uh, Apocalypse is also intended for a group in crisis. So this is now moving to what's in this, to who is it intended for. And this is for people who are in trouble. Why? To exhort and to console. To give them encouragement, really. um, By means of some divine authority. So I take this to mean um, that people are struggling Right, we talked about this in Daniel last year, um, but uh, to, just a quick refresher: people are struggling in their life. Maybe the government is oppressing them. Maybe they're, but they've been locked out of the economy um, because they're not, you know, they're not worshiping these deities or those deities. They refuse to eat that certain thing, and that you know they're being locked out of normal life. They're being oppressed in certain ways, and. John comes along, Apocalypse comes along in general, and says, God's with you. You think what you see is all there is? That's not the case. If I could only pull back the veil a little bit, you would see that God and his angels and all of creation is working together for you and for the glory of God. And You think those people who are in power now are really doing the right, you know, they're doing bad things and they're always going to be in power? Well, guess what? God's got this. This is a long quote, but I think worth reading. I'll have to find it here because I don't want it on a, feel free to follow along there on your papers. Top of page five if you're looking there, but if you want to, if you're just better at listening, I thought this was helpful. This is from uh, Richard Baucombe. He says that John and his readers with him is taken up into heaven in order to see the whole world from a heavenly perspective. He's given a glimpse behind the scenes of reality so he can see what's really going on in the events of his time and place. He's also transported in vision into the final future of the world so we can see the present from the, result, the perspective of the final, what the final outcome must be. In God's ultimate purpose for human history. And the effect of John's visions is to expand his reader's world spatially and temporally, or to put another way, to open their world to divine transcendence. The bounds which Roman power and ideology set to the reader's world are broken open. And that world is seen as open to the greater purpose of its transcendent creator and Lord. Everyone around me is telling me that Rome is the most powerful. Rome, the gods of Rome are are true and, and right because look at all this power they have. They, maybe they are right. Because if, if my God is really God, why isn't God coming down and changing this? This is just what they thought, the Jews thought before Jesus came, right? They had a certain expectations of who Jesus would be. Jesus didn't live up to those expectations they wanted a political revolution and they got it but not in the way they wanted right and in the same way those who are in crisis need encouragement it looks like everything around me is collapsing i thought god was really god this is a revelation is a response to that you think life is bad read revelation it's encouragement it's hope it's hope absolutely Uh, That next slide, you can read on your own. We're going to skip it. Okay. So now let's move on to discussion of authorship. John who? Right? It's John's revelation. John the prophet. John the seer. Sometimes he's referred to. Who is this John? Some people may say, oh, well, it's the same John that wrote the, the gospel of John. But we know that we don't actually have his name in the gospel. We do have a name here in Revelation, but um, which John? Uh, History is divided and scholars are divided. Most people think we just can't know. John was a very common name. So it's like saying, oh yeah, John Smith wrote the book. Which John Smith, right? Um, I just can't know. So um, some early records say it was John the bishop, Some say it was John the Elder, which would be different people. Um, And some say it was John the Apostle. We can't entirely know about who it was that wrote it. But what we can know about John is that John was deeply rooted in the Hebrew Bible. And we know this because 70% of the verses throughout Revelation make at least one allusion to the the Hebrew Bible. 70%. Everyone thinks Revelation is talking about the end times and the future. Well, actually, it's the other way. He's, he, he takes all of these stories that, that, that you would have grown up on as a kid, right? And he recasts them and retells them and mixes them up in different ways. 70% of the whole book is language and, and images from the Old Testament mixed and jumbled together in different ways. So he's, he knows his stuff. And then, while we don't know much about John, the writer of Revelation, from in his early life, we do know one thing about this same John. And that is that he um, consecrated the bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp, who was an early church father. I don't know if we've talked about him in this class before. But he was, in, he was one of the best-known early Christian martyrs, a native of Smyrna, um, and he had been, according to two different sources, Polycarp was consecrated by this John, the same John that wrote revelation um, and so while we don 't know a lot about John, we know that he was he was connected to a community, he was involved, he was important enough that he could consecrate this guy right and this is well before revelation becomes part of the canon but because of the relationship, Metzger says that uh, it's really likely that Polycarp knew what John had written, and that it was probably a source of strength to him, that when he was coming into his hour of trial, his hour of martyrdom, he probably thought about those very words, right? He probably thought that this is the moment when my eyes will be opened, and, my, and, and the veil will be pulled back, and I will see Everything as it truly is. <clears throat> We've talked about this some already, but what is the audience to which John is writing? Um, obviously, they're Christians with an unsure future. <clears throat> and probably Christians with some, some firm girding in and foundation in the Hebrew Bible. Right? Um, there's kind of this, this, there's some options here. Or the Christian communities to which he's writing. Blend in, assimilate, and compromise your faith. That's an option. Not a good one, but that's an option. Or, stick out, resist, and risk ostracization. So the political situation in some of the, in the, fir- in the first few chapters, John writes seven letters, right? They're really seven, this is the, the letter portion of the book. And to each of those communities, what we, have, what we know from the book and we know from other historical um, data is that uh, these, these communities were being persecuted. And if they, if they blended in, if they stuck out, if they you know, paid their dues to the, the temples or if they said their prayers to the Roman gods, um, they could get by. But as soon as you start saying, well, no, no, I'm not doing that anymore, I'm a Christian. Well, maybe you're out of work, because your whole guild that you are part of, you have a deity uh, over your guild, so you have to pay your dues, right? It's like if you want to be in a union, you've got to pay your dues. Well, if you're not paying your dues, guess what? You're out, right? Same thing here. And then for some, it was, I either blend in, assimilate, and live a good life, or I stick out, resist not only risk ostracization, but risk poverty, right? And that's what we can see from those early letters. So with these kinds of people, with this kind of community who um, is struggling, coded language would be necessary Beca- for a whole host of reasons, one of which being um, without coded language, this may be picked up and quickly destroyed by the authorities because there's, there's some pretty political language in here once we decode some of it. And there, I, think, I do think there is some coded language, um, not just my Southern Baptist upbringing there. Um, we'll come back to that. Yeah. In um, the first chapter, John writes When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he placed his right hand on me. Right? This is good theater. He placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead and sea, I am alive forever and ever, and I have the keys of death and of hades. whoa that's where're that's where we're starting out. This is going to be good. Buckle in, buckle your seatbelt because we are in for quite a ride, right that's where we start off the book. So if you are a Christian with an unsure future. If you are reminded Christ is the one in control, he controls death. So those potentially facing death by persecution or a loss of livelihood, they can take heart, knowing God is with them. Controlling, really, truly controlling life and death. And then finally, um, we have a rough idea of when John wrote this book, um, most would put it around 95, the year 95. Here's just a very broad outline. We can go into more detail. But just so we can see in broad strokes, we have a prologue and an epilogue. And in the middle, there's really two major chunks. The first chunk is about three chapters long. And these are the, the uh, letters to the seven churches. And then from there on out, we have all these visions this is a very highly structured book. Like if you go if you're a mathematician, uh read this book and start counting and start figuring out how it's structured because there is an amazing amount of structure, amazing amount of, you know, throughout the whole book certain things are only said 7 times. Certain things are said 12 times. It is highly developed. It's not just, "Oh, I thought this up and here it is." No, it is, this probably took years of crafting to come up with revelation as it stands. So I want to talk about, um, next I want to talk about colors and numbers. Because I think this is a, uh, an initial um, key to unlocking some of the mystery of the, uh, the book, what the book has to say. So we see a few different colors, particularly white, red, purple black, pale green, and gold. But what do these all mean? And these here on the right are the, the references within the book. So we, whenever we see white, it reminds us of victory, of resurrection, of purity, cleanliness, divinity. Obviously, when we see red, we're supposed to be reminded of blood, but also violent power. Whenever we see purple, we should be reminded of empire and decadence. Right? Jesus doesn't come wearing a purple robe, which purple previously was associated with royalty. Here, royalty is the perversion. That's empire. Those are the bad guys. So Jesus isn't in a purple robe. Jesus in a, is in a white, pure robe of resurrection and victory. And the color black, of course, is death and disaster. Pale green is also death. And then gold is an incorruptible wealth, beauty, royalty, and then divinity. Both false and actual. So there's, a, there's some nuance there. Um, but gold appears, as you can see. There's, there's four different lines of it. There's, there's a lot of gold and white in the book. And then some numbers. We've already talked about the number seven just briefly. Um, this, the, there were, in those first few chapters, there were letters written to seven churches. Well, seven, what do we know about the number seven? Throughout the Bible. Okay, God created the earth in seven days. So in seven days, all things were created. So there's a sense of completion, fullness. And so whenever you see the number seven, you could, not saying you should, but you could uh, replace that number with a word. It's almost like these, these numbers are functioning as adjectives, other adjectives, and they really are. So it could be complete, full, all. So when when John is writing to the seven churches, is he really writing to all the churches? Um, and then there's this, go ahead. Yeah. So there is a sense that there are a few numbers here that um, like six and three and a half in particular um, are, if seven is kind of the model of perfection six is not quite there three and a half is half of perfect so if you're half perfect you're not really perfect right um and then there's other numbers we see three a lot uh, of course you know three in the godhead and three just pops up all over the place um, 12 there's the 12 tribes the 12 apostles um, thousands and multiples and you see all those, you can, look, you can look at those. And the reason that, I'm guessing the reason that there are none here is because seven appears about a million times in this book. Um, but really, if you, if you go through and you're, as you're reading and you say, well, there's seven seals. Well, what does that possibly mean, right? Like you have this manuscript, you have this scroll, and you have seven seals on it. What might that mean? Does it mean that there are actually seven seals? Maybe. But I think, instead, if we imagine we can replace it, with another adjective we could say it's completely sealed it is wholly sealed it is all sealed up there's no way to get into it right so every time we see seven maybe we can think that way let's go to the seven churches and then we'll jump to uh into a passage so this is modern day turkey anatolia the time and here is where john is writing out on an isle of patmos now, there is the tradition that John was out on Patmos. He was exiled because he was a Christian, and the authorities didn't like him, and so they sent him out there to, to shut him up. Um, that's maybe not the whole story. We just can't really know. Um, some people say maybe he self-exiled, right? Just like the desert fathers a few centuries later would go out in the desert to receive a vision from God, maybe that's what John did. Maybe he Maybe he took a cruise to Patmos and said, Okay, I'm staying here, bye guys, and I want to get a vision from God here. This looks like a beautiful place to set up camp, I don't know. But he wrote a letter to seven churches, and it's really one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, in this little order. And some have suggested why this order, it's because, you know, the, the first one is the best, and the first is the worst, and the second is the best, and the third is the one with the hairy chest, no, no, not that, um, um. It's because if John has written this and he gives it off to a messenger, it would be perfect for him to go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and carry this and read it and carry it and read it and deliver it to all the people. Now, along the way, uh, I would guess, I would, I would bet some money on this that, that these people said, Whoa, 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 I want a copy of that. So give me a few days and let me write the whole thing out before you go on to Smyrna. Um, because Ephesus needs a copy of that. I don't know what that. I don't know what you just read to us. I didn't get it all, but I know that there's some good stuff in there, and I need to know it. So it's a circular letter, and there's this beautiful image. Uh, let's open up our Bibles, because we're going to go to another passage here in just a moment. But while we're, Amen. Okay, So there are seven lampstands. This is in the beginning of chapter two. Chapter two, verse one. To the angel of the church of Ephesus. Wow, there's an angel of the church of Ephesus. Okay. Does that mean there's an angel of Christ Presbyterian Church too? I don't know. Um, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars. What do we just say seven means? All. All complete, everything whole, you know, pick your pick your poison there. All the stars. That's not, he's not just holding seven while, you know, there are billions around him. This is the one who holds all of the power. All of the stars in his right hand. Who walks among the seven. We have seven churches coming up, so this could just actually mean seven churches. Or it could mean all the golden lampstands. But... Because this is the preamble to these seven letters, we're supposed to understand that these lampstands are each a church. But this is a beautiful image that I, don't want, us to, I want us to really grasp and hold on to. That this is the Lord who walks among the churches. So this isn't some far-off time where, you know, the end of the world is here and the anti... No, there's, none of that is here. None of that is here. This is saying, these churches are there. I'm writing to you guys. I want you to know Christ is with you. He's not just saying the Lord be with you and also with you, right? He's, he's giving this beautiful image of you are a light on a hill, right? right? Talking about what Jesus said. You are like a light for the nations, and don't think you're just alone. You're the only one that has to keep that light burning. Because Christ himself, the one who holds all of the stars in his hand, the ruler of the creator of all, he's right with you. That's a powerful verse. Again, it's not talking about end times. That's talking about then. It's talking about now. Jesus is with us. And isn't that this, There's. it's almost this mystical, mysterious, transcendent image of Okay, if each church is a lampstand, Jesus is walking among us like why does that it's just i i can't i haven't been able to get that out of my uh, out of my mind since I' read that so there's lots of beauty there at least oh oh, that's all it said and he loves us he's with us, and he loves us. I thought you were saying I just gave you three homilies. Well, so yeah, the <laughs> there you go, the fourth one. Um, we're not going to delve into all of the letters. We just don't have the time. But there's some, they are pretty interesting to, to talk through. Um, what I want to mention is here, I've got to be careful with my words here. Uh, what I want to mention is that some um, s- scholars throughout history have taken these seven churches as representative of different eras in church history, right? So they'll say, oh, well, the church of Ephesus, that was the early church. The church of Smyrna, maybe that was the church fathers. And then over here, you've got the, the, this is the Reformation, and this is post-Reformation. And, oh, we're the bad church. Because Laodicea, they're the ones that are lukewarm, and Christ says, be hot, be cold, but don't be lukewarm, or I'll spit you out of my mouth. Right, and some scholars have said well we 're the Laodicea church because we are um, we are not being faithful, and so we need to really live into this and hear it this way. This is called the historical prophetical view um, through and saying that throughout church history all um, where is it here hold on that all seven t- um, where am I going? Throughout church history, all seven types of church will be present, but one type will dominate. That's really what uh, these folks say. Ooh. what? What was your question? I didn't catch it. Jay. I well, yeah. Well, that, and that's what. This is where it gets a little funny, is because um, it, it's it's hard to say what church. What area of the church, if you're thinking more globally, you know we may be if some folks are saying, well we're lukewarm in America, well, guess what the church in Africa is on fire, and so they are you know growing in asia there's the lord the, the spirit is at work in many ways so <clears throat> scholars today say this is not quite true. I heard this growing up, we were the church of Laodicea we are the you know I heard this kind of stuff i I mention it not to say it 's right, but actually to say. I don't think it's that right. And we need to be careful of that kind of a theology. Um, Did I see a hand somewhere over here? Was it Dan? No, maybe not. So um, I think we just need to be careful. Really with the whole book of Revelation, we need to be careful. Because people will come along and say, it's exactly this. If someone says they understand Revelation to you, and they they say, oh, I get it. I read Left Behind. I've read Hal Lindsey. I get it all. They don't get it. They don't get it. I don't get it. You can you can study this book for a lifetime and still not get everything in it, um, because there's more going on than um, most people think. And especially this kind of, I totally get it. I totally understand what what John is doing here. And so let me apply it on a big scale. Or I understand like what in Left Behind, right? There's oh there's 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 plagues of locusts and locusts with human faces that are really loud so that must be apache helicopters right there are christians out there who believe that that is legitimate interpretation um and people who write books that interpret it those ways and i want us to um not necessarily say we're, we're not trying to mock those folks we're not trying to say that um that's wrong but we need to just be careful um Imagination, right? It's not about facts. It's more about if you saw a locust coming at you with a human face, how would you feel? Like, oh, right? you, you'd be scared out of your wits. That is what John is trying to do. He's trying to make you feel that. He's not necessarily trying to say, oh, guess what? There was a locust that had a human face. I can't believe it. That, I've never seen that species before. We should study that in a laboratory. That's, he's not going there. Not going there. Okay. So, blessed is the one who reads aloud. The words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. This comes from the third verse of the chapter of the book itself. Blessed are those who read aloud. In antiquity, um, everyone read everything aloud. So if you were, if you had a book, if you were wealthy enough to own a book, you would not have sat there alone in a corner and, and you know, looked at it, and you would have done that. You would have said, "Oh, in the angel of the, I'm the words of." The and people would know that, that you're reading. And you might read louder, I don't know. But Augustine, in the fourth century, people made fun of him because he didn't read aloud. So whenever we hear in the Bible people, people reading, we know that people are reading out loud. So blessed are those who read aloud the words of the prophecy. And actually, the word aloud" does not appear in the Greek. As far as I understand it, it's just, blessed are those who read the words of the prophecy. Well, they all read aloud, so you didn't need to say it. Okay. I want us to go um, to Revelation chapter 4. And if you're a visual person like me, follow along. If you, are, um, if you just would rather listen and, and hear the words, that's okay too. But we're going to go to Revelation, and we're just going to read a few chapters of this, because this is our blessing for today. Blessed is the one who hears the words. So this is John writing and speaking. Revelation 4. After this I looked up, and there in heaven a door stood open. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet really loudly, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there in heaven stood a throne, with one seated on the throne. And the one seated there looks like jasper and carnelian, and around the throne is a rainbow that looks like an emerald. Around the throne are 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones are 24 elders, dressed in white robes with golden crowns on their heads. Coming from the throne are flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and in front of the throne burn seven flaming torches, which are the seven spirits of God. And in front of the throne, there's something like a sea of glass, ...like crystal. Around the throne on each side of the throne there are four living creatures. Full of eyes, in front and behind. The first, like a lion. The second, like an ox. The third, with a face of a human face. And the fourth, living creature, like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes... All around and inside, day and night without ceasing, they sing, Holy, 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 the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall before the one who is seated on the throne and worship. The one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne singing. You are worthy our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your word they existed. And were created. I'm going to pause there. I know we only have a few minutes left. But what do we what is our? Do we have any visceral responses in this? Are we are we confused? Are we are we as as we try to paint these creatures in our head? Are we like grossed out? What is? Do we have any responses to this? We just think, oh, that's so weird. <laughs> where, where are we on the spectrum of oh, that's so weird, or oh my gosh, that's disgusting. Like where? How or, or wow, that is beautiful. These 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 ghastly creatures are worshiping God. Where are we? What is our? What are some of our responses to this? To this text? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> say say it. Perhaps, perhaps there's an element of yeah. You, we have to code this. We have to keep it mysterious. But perhaps there's. Sometimes information is best communicated as facts. Some as story, and some as something that awakens your imagination. And I think John isn't trying to just communicate facts. He's trying to get your emotions running. He's trying to get you to have a physical, emotional response to what he's, the pictures he's painting. Is that a hand rich or just a scratch? Oh, sorry, sorry, okay, okay. Anyone else? yeah Rosie right sure but what do you so it it is a mystery, and I'm with you there, but what do we what is not mysterious about what's going on here what right they're worshiping God, and going back to the audience here, right this is the people in crisis, and the powerful people in the in the world are saying. Your God's not so great. My God's the one you need to be worshiping. But then there are these 24 elders. They all have thrones. These are powerful people. They all have their own throne right next to who? Our God. You think that one emperor is big deal? No, no, no. Our God, he's the big deal. He's the one we need to really be worshiping. And look at all those beasts. I don't even know what those beasts are all about. But those beasts, the very, the, the, these, uh, scary, ghoulish things in creation, I thought I was scared of the of the Roman legions but and and the centurions, but no, 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 those are a lot scarier, and if they're worshiping God, maybe, maybe I should be continuing to walk in this path. This is about discipleship, not an imagination, imagination, and discipleship we 've got two more minutes. I want to just. Just get in a little bit to chapter 5 here. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne, right? A few minutes ago he had had stars in his hand. Now he's got a scroll written on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. We talked about a minute ago, seven full. Fully sealed up. Completely sealed. Then I saw a mighty angel proclaiming, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? No one. No one in heaven and on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep bitterly. It's almost like you're there with John. You're like, why am I weeping? What is, there's something, something's going on here, right? How do we enter into this story? I wept bitterly because no one was found worthy. This is, we don't even know what's in it, but we know that it must be special. We know that it's completely sealed up. Who sealed it? I don't know. There's so many questions we have. But there's this beautiful piece of mystery. Nobody can open it? Isn't that terrible? It's like a big safe that has the, imagine a giant safe that had the, you know, the words of, you know, I don't know, whatever the thing you would most want. I would most want, you know, copy the first set of Gospels or something crazy, right? Imagine that's what you have. And it's locked away. Nobody can open it. And you're weeping bitterly, right? Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Every time we get this weird image and we don't quite know what to do with it. If nothing else, think there is power, there is loss of power. where is the power dynamic here? There's something beautiful and powerful. nobody can do anything with it except Jesus, the one, the lion of the tribe of Judah, root of David, who has conquered he alone, he alone is worthy to open the seven seals. Well there we will end today, but i want to I want to close this in prayer. I know people are are at the doors trying to get in. But let us us go to the Lord in prayer. Almighty God, we thank you for the gift of your holy scriptures. We thank you for an opportunity to just crack open and scratch the very surface of the book of Revelation today. We pray, Almighty God, that your Holy Spirit would be with us. And as your Holy Spirit inspired John of Patmos all those many years ago, May that same Spirit speak to our hearts. May our hearts burn within us as we read and as we hear these words. And may our imaginations be awakened. Reminded that you are on the throne. That you are most powerful of all, Almighty God. And when we are oppressed, when we are struggling, may we be reminded that you've got this. That you are with us. And may we find words, of promise, and words of hope in these pages. We give this day all that we are, all that we say and do over to you, Almighty God and Father, Lord Jesus Christ, through your Holy Spirit. And together we say, Amen.